All new life comes out of the dark places, and hasn't it always been? That's a quote from Anne Voskamp. We enter God's intimate sphere through the door formed by the wound in the side of God's word and son. And that's a quote from Hans Urs von Balthasar. Easter was just a couple of weeks ago, and for followers of Christ, it was not about bunnies or eggs or celebrating spring. It was about Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead to defeat sin and death and allow all of us reconciliation with a holy God who could never tolerate our sin without this intercession. Jesus himself told us, that following him would lead to some struggle and some suffering in John 15:18. We were also told that to follow him we would have to take up our cross in Luke 9:23, which was symbolic of sharing in the suffering of Jesus. Finally, we were even given living examples, uh, one of which happened when the apostles rejoiced at being worthy to suffer in his name in Acts 5.41. Can we fully accept the enormity of the sacrifice Jesus made for us if we cannot find some empathy for our part in his suffering? Can we call ourselves adopted sons and daughters if his suffering has no effect on our efforts to resist temptation every day? Hello and welcome to another glorious day in God's creation. I'm John Kowalski, and this is Rise Up, a podcast about life's challenges with solutions provided by the Word of God. This week, our topic is solidarity in Jesus' suffering. Uh, The desire of this uh, study, according to the writer, Annette Alberg Calhoun, uh, was to be with Jesus in my pain and in his, in his pain. Um, and I'm going to diverge from her a little bit uh, during the course of this study because I feel like, and you'll see where I'll point it out, that we spend too much time asking Jesus to live to show solidarity for our pain when really this study is supposed to be us showing solidarity in his sufferings. Remember, he suffered by choice. Um, We suffer not so much by choice, right? Um, Sin was in the world before we were even born, and much of our suffering comes from that sin that was loosed on the world. Uh, It can be argued that even disease and and, um, and things like that 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 are of this world are are man-made. They they come from the sin that is in the world. Um, we notice in the Bible that people lived a lot longer in the early Old Testament when there was less sin in the world. Uh, as we put more sin into the world, it becomes a more difficult place to live. Um, so. I'm going to diverge from her in that respect. I'm going to try to stay away from Jesus in solidarity with my pain. uh, And I am going to try to show solidarity for his pain 
in this study. That's not to say that we should not bring our pain to Jesus. We absolutely should uh, bring that to him and we shouldn't live in it. Uh, But that's not the point of this particular study. And can't we for a couple of hours, uh, one week, just show solidarity for the pain Jesus suffered and put ourselves aside for a moment? I think we can. So that's what I'm going to try to do. So the definition for this uh, study, the solidarity, uh, Albert Calhoun states that we're in solidarity with Jesus's sufferings when we hold our pain and bear our burdens together with Jesus and his own suffering for the world. I think the wording of this definition is a bit confusing. I think what Albert Calhoun means is that we shouldn't be holding our burdens. We should be giving them to Jesus and surrender in faith in his ability to deliver us from them. In giving them over to Jesus, our burden is lightened, as stated in Matthew 11, 29 and 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There are two issues here that are being smashed together in this study, which I just mentioned, right? We should give our burdens to Jesus in confidence that he can relieve their weight from our shoulders. Uh, If we're truly trying to show solidarity with Jesus's pain and suffering on our behalf, should we be coming to him in that time, in that moment, with the intent to further cleanse ourselves? That doesn't show solidarity with him to me that's asking him for further uh, solidarity with us Uh, shouldn't we instead set aside some time to make every effort to connect our personal sin with his suffering for that sin maybe we should try to resist sin as often as possible in gratitude for and understanding of what Jesus endured already for our inborn nature. These are very complicated questions that have likely been debated since the first church was founded after Jesus ascended. My personal take on this is that we can do both. Jesus suffered for our sins 2,000 years before we were even born to commit them. He knew we would resist some and commit others. When we resist a sin, it is simply... It is simply one less that our Savior had to pay for. I know it's confusing because he suffered all that pain many years ago, but he did so fully knowing which sins we would actually commit and which we weren't. So resisting a sin doesn't cause a ripple in time that removes a wound from his broken body, but it does do something for the person resisting the sin, both physically and mentally. Physically, we have resisted that sin, many of which result in some form of physical harm in the world, either to us or to others, or both. Mentally, in resisting, we have removed a bit of toxicity from our minds. We have also demonstrated that we are strong enough to reprogram our minds to choose righteousness and rebuke sin. The more often we do this, the easier it becomes. Uh, Albert Calhoun cites a few scriptures. Uh, Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's solidarity, right? Second uh, Timothy 2, 3, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That certainly resonates with me. I do understand being a soldier and doing what is ordered of me. Uh, and I'm okay with having somebody give the orders, especially the king of all kings. Romans 5.3 Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. So, we can revel in our own sufferings because we know that it's doing something in us. It's refining us. It's growing us to be ready for what's next in our walk with Jesus. And then Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. I'd add a couple more uh, scriptures here myself. Uh, One in explanation of how we should understand suffering and the other as advice on how to feel about that suffering. We do live in a feelings-driven world these days, don't we? Uh, So I'm going to mention John 15, 18, which I mentioned earlier. If the world hates you, know that it it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus assures us that we are hated when we look and act like him. This is not a warning to adapt to the culture for safety. It's an encouragement that when the culture is against us, we're on the right path. And then Acts 5.41, which I again mentioned earlier, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In moments of suffering, it's hard to see past the mental, physical, or spiritual pain to this level of truth. We are human, we are fallible, and we are in many ways blinded by our feelings and emotions. At some point though, shouldn't we come to the realization that Luke points us to here? Do we truly believe that suffering for the name of Jesus is evidence that we are worthy of his sacrifice and suffering for us? Albert Calhoun indicates that the practice of showing solidarity with uh, the suffering of Jesus includes connecting our trials to Jesus' own. Temptations, hardships, betrayal, disappointment, conflict, all of it. I'm not interested really in comparing or connecting my personal suffering to what Jesus endured for me. Showing solidarity with the suffering of Jesus should not be about me, but about my understanding and gratitude toward my Savior. There is no comparison between my trials and Jesus's nor could there ever be. For me, this discipline is more about drawing a straight line from my sin to the suffering that Jesus endured because of it. When I'm tempted, I try to discourage myself from succumbing by 
closing my eyes and imagine Jesus taking stripes, scorn, beatings, and even dying for that sin. I know that when I fail to resist, it again, it doesn't send this weird ripple back in time like in a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, right? Um, so that Jesus does take another strip when I sin, stripe when I sin, and he, a stripe is taken away from him when I don't. I know it doesn't work that way, right? But that said, connecting my sin to his pain keeps me in a posture of empathy. This forces me to consider sin intentionally and stop allowing myself to use the most common justification in all of history for our sins that no one really gets hurt. Um, second, she mentions uh, connecting our trials to Jesus's own. Um, our part of the practice, include in, in addition to connecting our trials to Jesus, uh, imagining that we're with Jesus in all things. Would you break the law in front of a cop? Would you act the fool in front of your parents, your spouse, your pastor? Imagine all the sins, uh, the sin that we could resist if Jesus was standing next to us. Uh, observation removes opportunity, right? When we're being observed, we act differently. It also encourages discretion, right? We think about what we're going to do more before we do it when we're being watched. Acting as if we're being watched may be a helpful pretense for those who need a more definitive process to resist sin in their lives. Um, I'm not saying I'm perfect at it, but at least we make the effort, right? Next is meditate on how Jesus responded to conflict and hardship. The entire ministry of Jesus was conflict, right? The Romans hounded his followers for disrupting the order they used to keep the Jews compliant. The religious leaders questioned his every move, his teachings, his word. Even the disciples embroiled themselves in conflict on a regular basis. What did Jesus do? He spoke the truth, always. And when I say the truth, I mean the truth. Not his truth, not our truth, not your truth, not my truth. None of that exists. The truth of God is truth. Jesus encouraged us to separate the world from the kingdom and flesh from the spirit many times. But most notably in Matthew 22, 21, then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God, right? We are in God's image, right? His whole point there was whose face is on that coin? And it was Caesar's, right? But whose face is on your soul? We are in God's image. Render unto him what is his, which is all of you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that his time was short, Jesus prayed. In his greatest moment of hardship, when it came down to it, he would, of course, do what only he could have done. Luke 22:42 talks about this, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
Next, she mentions letting the pain go into Jesus's wound. I don't think this one should be part of this study at all. I think it's a, a worthwhile endeavor. I think we should be doing it every day. We shouldn't be carrying our pain. We should trust Jesus, trust God to get us through it. Um, but it's not part of showing solidarity with Jesus's suffering to give him more of our pain in this moment. Okay, we can take a moment away from our selfish needs and just focus on Jesus in this moment. Okay, so the word let in here, let the pain go into Jesus' wound, seems to imply that we have no other choice. I can accept that Jesus paid for every one of my sins with pain and suffering, mostly because he did it long before I was even born. Right. What I will not accept is my desire to sin unencumbered by empathy for that pain and suffering. When I sin, I do so fully knowing the cost. In fully knowing the cost, I can resist sin harder than I would without proper empathy. I do agree with giving everything to Jesus. I'll say it again. I'll say it probably more times in this podcast. I am not saying we do not give our our pain, our suffering to Jesus and ask for relief, right? But this process has no place in a study about showing solidarity for Jesus's suffering. Surrender, supplication, and repentance are 100% necessary and have their place in our lives. But that time is not when we are supposed to be connecting our sin to Jesus's pain in empathetic remorse. We can and should give all of our sin, pain, suffering, and trials to Jesus in confidence of his ability to overcome them. We should, however, be able to spend some time in pure empathy for our King and Savior to show gratitude for all he suffered for us some God-given fruit that will come from this process if we do it right, okay? Fellowship with Jesus in the midst of trials. When do we need him more than in the midst of our trials, right? Yes and amen. Jesus is with me when I am victorious and when I fail. Understanding that fact may help me to succeed more and sin less. Go to him in a posture of remorse, acknowledging that he has already done so much more for us, showing confidence that we will emerge from this trial refined for his service. Second, we will, we will gain compassion for those who suffer. And empathy is a feeling. Compassion is putting those feelings to work. Okay? Can we show proactive empathy, knowing that no sin is victimless? Can we force ourselves to consider who our sins may affect, including Jesus, and make better decisions? Is it enough for us to just feel empathy for somebody without ever doing anything about it? The Bible is clear that that's not what we're called to do, right? Do you tell, uh, I forget which 
scripture it is and it just popped into my head right about how do we tell people who don't have food or clothing uh god be with you and we walk away from them and they still don't have food and clothing is that enough i don't think so next it uh god-given fruit is the ability to hold pain without bitterness again we should give our pain to god and forgive those who caused it I just don't think that that should be included in a study about showing solidarity or empathy for the suffering of our Lord. The ability to hold pain without uh, bitterness benefits us, but how does it connect with the suffering of Jesus? It really doesn't. So while the ability to hold pain without bitterness is certainly something we should strive for, it's not really this study. That's more about trust and faith in why we should trust and have faith in a God who is always delivered for us. Next, God-given fruit is forgiveness. I do agree that forgiving others fits in with this study, right? Maybe the litmus test for showing solidarity with the suffering of Jesus is in who benefits from the effort of doing it. If we are the only beneficiary, then it's not being done for Jesus. If anyone else benefits, believer or non-believer, then it shows empathy for the suffering of Christ. Because he suffered for all, knowing full well that so many would refuse the grace gift and prefer to live in open rebellion. The next fruit is mellow patience in trials. This is a strange way of wording this, but I think it kind of parallels Psalm 4610. I had to read it a few times to kind of figure out where where Albert Calhoun was going with it, but maybe this is what she means. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth right? Mellow patience in trials, Um, being able to be still in the worst of it and trust and know that he is God and that it is happening to our benefit, even though in the moment we cannot possibly see that. The next fruit is trusting that Jesus will redeem all that's broken. So it kind of goes right into that one, right? This is absolutely true. Psalm 111.9 says, He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. But again, how does it show empathy for the suffering of Christ, right? Trusting in faith does give glory to God, which is always a good thing. There is no way we can give too much glory to a, to God. That said, I don't know if this is really showing empathy for what Jesus did, but it is still true, right? Uh, and then not transmitting my pain back on people. That's a, a fruit of this study. And yes, the beneficiary of this practice is not us, right? When we refuse to transmit our pain onto other people, we are not the beneficiary. Well, in a way we are, Um, but they're benefiting from it as well, right? In that way, it meets the goal of this 
study of this effort by intentionally gauging our impact on the world and changing our behavior to minimize the negative impact we may have we are taking up the cross jesus took up for us though on a much more minuscule scale of course uh i guess in this way giving our pain and suffering to god and moving on from it can result in empathy right because it's not always easy to do that, right? Humans tend to live in and with their pain and anger for a while. Unfortunately, that usually means or results in lashing out in others in some way. Refraining from these negative and toxic behaviors should be the absolute minimum that we should be doing. As followers of Christ, we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. We should seek people out who are suffering and try to help them in any way they require. Ephesians 4, 31 30 and 32 talk about this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I'm going to take a brief break and then we're I'll be right back and we're going to talk about more on how to show solidarity in Jesus' suffering, how to keep ourselves out of it in this moment that should be dedicated to our King, and then some reflection questions that take us further and deeper in this study. I'll be right back. All right, I'm back. Uh, we're talking about solidarity in Jesus's sufferings. Uh, and now we're going to talk a little bit more about how Albert Calhoun sees this. And, uh, and I'll interject where, where I feel necessary. Um, not that she doesn't do a great job of explaining this topic, but the whole point of this podcast is is to bring it down to the everyday level. I'm just a guy. I'm not a scholar or a theologian any more than anybody else who picks up a book and reads it. Um, so uh, my opinions are are biblically. Uh, I, I come about them through the Bible. Okay. Um, I'm not saying that I'm perfect at interpretation and, and if you feel like I get something wrong, I would love to debate that and, and see where I got it wrong. Um, but the point is, uh, I think people talk way over the heads of the average person, uh, sometimes, and we don't get what we need to get out of it. Uh, we don't see how it relates to our lives today. Uh, or how we should interpret what happened in the Bible. Uh, a lot of bad things happen in the Bible, but there's a reason and a lesson behind every one of them. And if we get the wrong lesson, we end up on the wrong path, and that's the last thing we want. So back into the study. Uh, Albert Calhoun asserts that Jesus's life was tough. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. He was misunderstood, ridiculed, betrayed, abandoned, abused, beaten, wrongfully accused, and executed. Uh, Jesus' suffering was so bad that he prayed for God to step in with an 11th hour stay of execution. 
right? Jesus, uh, in Albert Calhoun's words, handed himself over to God and learned obedience, citing Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. He didn't automatically do everything right because he was God. Jesus had to learn to hand his human will and longings to his Abba, Father, when things didn't go as he wanted, end quote. This claim kind of struck me as wrong at first, right? Why would Jesus have to learn anything? The simple answer that I came to after delving into this uh, more deeply is that Jesus lived fully as a man and accepted the limitations of that choice. He had to resist temptation in Matthew 4. He had to convince people verbally of what he knew. He had to endure abuse as any man would. In light of these facts, it's not far-fetched to assume that he would learn throughout his incarnated life. Uh, obedience would not be a trait inherent to God incarnate, right? Who would God be obedient to? So when Jesus comes to earth as a man, Obedience wouldn't be something he would automatically know. He would understand it from the other side of it, people being obedient to him and to his word. But being a man, he had to learn how to be obedient. It would be something that all of us learn, right? We don't come into the world knowing how to be obedient. It's taught to us. Um, and Voskamp writes in 1,000 Gifts, quote, out of darkness of the cross, the world transfigures into new life. It is suffering that has the realest possibility to bear down and deliver grace, end quote. Uh, when temptations are so private that you want to isolate yourself, according to Albert Calhoun, Go find Jesus in the wilderness and sit down with him as he contends with temptations to escape a hard path. Jesus lived through a huge miscarriage of justice. His trial was rigged, his crucifixion unjust. When life hands you unfairness, Jesus invites you to be in solidarity with him and his own sufferings. You don't have to face sorrow alone. Jesus wants to share it. End quote. This truth can be both challenging and encouraging. Knowing that life will be unfair is a hard pill to swallow, but not knowing or failing to accept that fact would just make it worse. Knowing that Jesus bore that unfairness to save us should encourage us that we can do the same on a much smaller scale, of course. Albert Calhoun cites Paul, who writes in Philippians 3.10, quote, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, end quote. I, something came up at our men's conference this past week that I feel is relevant here, right? Uh, one of the speakers mentioned that men study the Bible for three years or study religion for three years and then preach for 30. And Jesus studied 
for 30 years and preached for three. So I think that tells you a lot about the difference between what Jesus suffered for us and was willing to do for us and what we're willing to do for him, right? How many pastors, preachers, ministers, priests would agree to 30 years of study and three years of ministry? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to answer that question for someone, but I don't know that we would get the answer we think we would or should. Um, I would hope that it would also make us more aware of the pain that Jesus suffered on our behalf. All of these truths should serve to connect our sin to the personal and social and even global repercussions that they have. How long can we, as Christians, cling to the flimsy justification of no one gets hurt by my sin but me? It shows a lack of awareness of our impact and a complete lack of empathy for others. Albert, Albert Calhoun again lapses into the sinner relieving themselves of their burden when she says, quote, in your joy and pain, join your heart to Jesus. Empty your sorrow in his wounds and let Jesus fill your holy vacancy with himself. Because at the center of the universe is a cross and God is hanging there in solidarity with a broken world for love of you. Again, and that's an end quote. Again, this is 100% true. Uh, but if this study is truly about showing solidarity with the suffering of Jesus, why do we keep interjecting our suffering and making it about ourselves? We spend most of our prayer lives telling God what we need. In this reflective moment of empathy for a giving Lord, can't we just come from a posture of asking what we can do for him? In the 17th century, Madame Guyon wrote, God gives us the cross, and then the cross gives us God. None of us are free to choose whether or not we suffer, but we are free to choose bitterness or solidarity with Jesus. We can choose solidarity in Jesus' suffering and rise. Our wounds can be transformed just like his into sacred wounds that honor God. Again, I agree. Uh, Albert Calhoun uh, says it well, but we need to keep that posture of gratitude in this particular study and not make this about asking for more for this moment of this study. Some reflection questions that Albert Calhoun uh, challenges us with. First of all, how do I tend to react when life is unfair? What do I do with the pain? I'm just a man like every other man, uh, except for my relationship with God. Not all men have that, or women for that matter. Uh, that said, what do I do, or I'm sorry, what I do when life seems unfair and what I want to do in those situations are two different things. Much like Paul said in Romans 7, 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I get frustrated sometimes, even angry when unfairness piles on me in life. 
I tend to try to get through it myself in silence, alone. I try not to allow it to affect others, but as I have learned in my work, buried feelings can be as toxic to those around you as secondhand smoke. What I should be doing is surrendering these feelings of unfairness to God. I should be letting them go in understanding that no one ever promised me fairness. How should I be handling situations of unfairness? The easy answer is how we should act in all situations. We should be salt and light, right? This is not an either or thing. It's a both and situation. If we want to be Christ followers. Okay, so I threw out a scripture like many do, leaving us to figure out for ourselves how we actually do it. But I do have a few suggestions from scripture. Okay, first, be impartial in judgment. Use God's righteousness, not yours, because you don't have any, neither do I. Our righteousness is in Jesus, right? So Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Right? How many people have told you, non-Christians, atheists, whoever, that we shouldn't judge? Nope. Very clearly, God says we should judge. But we should do so in righteousness, which means we should be using God's judgment, not ours. The world tells us in Matthew 7, 1, right? They, they use that to tell us not to judge. Um, but as often happens with unbelievers, they only tell you half the story. If you go a couple verses further in Matthew uh, 7, verses 3 through 5 tells followers how to judge correctly by dealing with our own failings first right? Remember, in all situations, what Isaiah 64, 6 teaches us, we have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So we don't have righteousness on our own. The righteousness we should be using is God's, right? Number two, walk the walk. I can't say that enough, right? We go to church, maybe... Sometimes we don't because it's sunny out. Sometimes we don't because it snowed. Sometimes we don't because we got, you know, something better to do. Uh, Sometimes we go. Sometimes we serve, you know. But are we really walking the walk? Isaiah 117 gives us five clear steps uh, telling us to, and I'm quoting, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and please the widow's cause. Where we fail so often is in determining whose justice we are fighting for. We tend to substitute our own moral code or a charismatic leader's when God's way becomes inconvenient or too disrupting in our lives, right? So let's take those one at a time. Learn to do good, right? So On our own, we are not good. We are only good because of the sacrifice of Jesus that covers our sins, right? So to learn to do good, we have to do so by God's standards, not our own. And we have an amazing handbook called the New Testament of how Jesus told us to be good, to behave, to carry his cross. 
to be his disciples. Second, seek justice. This is God's justice, not our justice. It's not justice when we go into poor neighborhoods and burn down all the businesses because the police shot somebody. Um, That's not justice, right? Blocking highways so people can't get home to their families or get to their jobs, that's not justice. Reparations in the name of past sins of people long dead, that's not justice. That's the opposite of justice, okay? Third, correct oppression. Again, God's way. Culture tells us that reversing the partiality of the past is the answer, right? God says show no partiality. Social justice warriors can't oppress the oppressors who are long dead, but they can oppress the people who look like the oppressors. This just creates more victims. The answer is to be impartial starting now and move forward together preferably in Christ. Fourth, bring justice to the fatherless. This one is close to our hearts. Wendy and I made a conscious decision to change every aspect of our lives to live this out. The more we spend serving the least of these in the foster care system, the more we want to do to change it, meaning the foster care system. We serve, work, and live to do whatever we can to help kids who were failed by families, educators, government, and culture to see that their lives have value and purpose, to help them see that their lives have value and purpose. They are not limited to the circumstances they were born into. And then finally, please the widow's cause. Another group of the least of these who are forgotten at best and abused at worst in our culture is the elderly, the widows. Society treats them as burdens or worse targets for scams when they should be protected and cherished for their lifelong contributions. Number two. Where am I most easily triggered, and how does that trigger put me in touch with God or out of touch with God? I'm not a fan of the word triggered when it comes to the behavior of adults. I think it gives us a crutch, an excuse to blame others for our inappropriate responses and actions. You triggered me, so my outrageous reaction is on you. Um, I don't buy into that. I work with kids who have suffered heartbreaking trauma in their young lives. They do get triggered. Their unwanted and undeserved trauma causes them to react often involuntarily. Seemingly innocuous sounds, places, encounters, even sights can bring them back to moments of fear, pain, and loss stemming from that trauma, abuse, and neglect. In those triggered moments, They react in ways that don't seem to match the situation or even seem to be out of nowhere, but they are definitely not out of nowhere. Trauma behaviors never come from nowhere. We simply don't understand the triggers yet. 
With this understanding in mind, I refuse to falsely claim to be triggered. I am fully in control of my actions, words, and behaviors. What makes me most likely to seek God's attention is the hypocrisy of the world that we live in right now. I am convinced that we live in the age of apostasy foretold in 1 Timothy 4.1 when he said, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Apostasy is defined a couple of different ways. In Merriam-Webster's dictionary, it's an act of refusing to continue to follow, obey, or recognize a religious faith or abandonment of a previous loyalty along the lines of defection. Uh, Holman's Bible Dictionary uh, explains it a little differently. It's the act of rebelling against, forsaking, aban forsaking, abandoning, or falling away from what one has believed. Notice that only believers in the Holman's uh, definition can commit apostasy. You can't abandon a belief you never had, or at least claim to have had. Theologians seem to fail or seem to fall into three camps on this issue. One, uh, based on the concept of God's sovereign grace, some hold that though true believers may stray, they will never totally fall away. Okay. Uh, number two, others affirm that any who fall away were never really saved, right? They were claiming to be Christians, but they never were in their heart. If they were in their heart, they would not be able to fall away. Uh, though they may have believed for a while, and believed is in quotes, they never experienced regeneration. Third, Still others argue that the biblical warnings against apost apostasy are real and that believers maintain the freedom, at least potentially, to reject God's salvation, which means then you can be saved and then reject later God's salvation. I don't know if I believe that. It seems to go against scripture, right? We're told that once we believe, Nothing can take that belief from us. So I probably fall into the second camp, right? The where, you know, the people who fall away were, were never really saved, okay? Uh, Thomas Ice, in a paper he wrote called The End Time Apostasy for Liberty University, argued that the great apostasy would include a series of denials. I'm not going to read all the scriptures, but I'm going to list them so you can separately if you'd like. Um, first denial is the not denial of God, and that's in Luke 17, 26, 2 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. Atheism falls right into that category, right? How about the denial of Christ? Uh, talked about in 1 John 2, 18, 4, 3, and 2 Peter 2, 6. Um, that's deism. In Judaism, right? Deism is belief in a God, but not the Bible God, the biblical God. Uh, Judaism believes in God, but not in Christ, right? How about the denial of Christ's return? 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4. Uh, Judaism, Islam, secularism all fall into this category. How about the denial of the faith? 
in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, and Jude 3. How about everyone from atheists to deconstructionists to relativists fall into this denial of faith, right? Uh, denial of sound doctrine. That's in uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. Uh, a lot of categories fall into this. Historical criticism, the Enlightenment, the social gospel, progressive Christianity, cultural Christianity, evangelical deconstructionism all fall into the denial of sound doctrine. Uh, how about the denial of separated life? Um, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 talks about this. Progressive Christianity, cultural Christianity, evangelical deconstructionism, and universalism all fall into the category of denying a separated life. Uh, denial of Christian liberty in 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. Christian nationalism falls right into this one. Denial of morals, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 8 and 13, and Jude 18. Universalism and relativism all fall into this, right? And many others. Um, denial of authority, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 45, all of the above. Every single category I listed denies the authority, especially the authority of Christ. Uh, Ice quotes 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, when he says, uh, quote, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Paul finishes the thought with three words of warning that we should all heed, especially now when all of these denials have clearly been made by the world. He simply warned us in the final sentence of verse 5 to avoid such people. I'm going to take another quick break, and then I'll wrap up with a couple of more reflection questions and some spiritual exercises uh, for this topic. Be right back. All right, I'm back. Uh, in the first segment, we defined our terms, right? We're talking about solidarity and Jesus's sufferings. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that it was clear that the goal for me of this study was about showing empathy for what Jesus suffered for us. While I agree and understand that we should give our suffering to Jesus and in prayer, asking for relief from it, we should do that on a daily basis, that this study, this time of showing empathy for Jesus should preclude that. We should take a moment to not dump more on Jesus, although he can handle it all, but to show empathy and to align ourselves with his suffering on our behalf. So the second segment, we discussed 
uh, Annette Alberg Calhoun's impressions and and goals from this study that she created in her spiritual disciplines handbook. Um, I did kind of pipe in to keep the topic on showing empathy for Jesus instead of our uh, desire to give him our suffering in desire for relief from it. Um, Again, I can't stress enough, we should be doing that, but can't we take a minute or a few days, a few hours uh, during the course of a week to look at what Jesus suffered for us without adding more to that? Um, I think we can, right? We also discussed some reflection questions uh, and left off with the third reflection question that Albert Calhoun asked us to dig into, right? What is it like to fellowship in another's suffering? Like most people I know, I struggle mightily in the face of tragedy. I show up and I do my best and try to be supportive by listening and not interjecting my own issues into their pain. Uh, I'm certainly awkward and uncomfortable and I feel like it shows. Um, I've always kind of felt like an outsider in any room that I'm in. Um, I don't feel like I fit in easily. Uh, I don't ever feel like I know the right words to say. Uh, I often chastise myself for the words I do say, uh, and sometimes for the words that I choose not to say that probably should have or didn't think of in the moment. Um, Carrie and Spencer Essenprice, I think that's how you pronounce their last name, in their article, Five Steps to Encourage Someone Who is Suffering, attempt to answer just this question. They list, learn and affirm, two, turn to God, three, bring our complaints to the Lord, four, ask, and five, trust. Uh, as the five steps to encourage someone who is suffering. Um, I feel like this is a pretty good list. We should definitely listen and not necessarily interject our own personal experience into it unless asked. Um, Times of suffering are a great time to bring God into the mix. This may not surprise anyone, but I have never had anyone say no to an offer of prayer in a situation like this even the most rebellious of atheists. Uh, Bringing complaints to the Lord gets weird reactions from believers and non-believers alike, right? Believers often express that we shouldn't express doubt, anger, or even question God in any way. Clearly, the Bible tells us otherwise, right? Job, the Psalms, Lamentations, and even Jesus in Mark 14, 36 expressed complaint to God or doubt about the plan. Um, Momentary as it was for Jesus, not so momentary for most of the others. Um, What does the person you are encouraging need from God in their situation? 
whether it's peace or comfort or healing or deliverance or relief, ask for it and keep asking for it. Finally, trust that God will provide what you need. Many even pray or ask as if God has already provided the result as Mark 11:24 asserts. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Okay. Describe a time. Well, let me stop for a second. I don't want to you to think that my quoting Mark 11:24 is some kind of crazy prosperity gospel um, shot by me. I do not believe in the prosperity gospel. I think God answers all of our prayers. Uh, I think sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes the answer is wait, not now. Something in us needs to be prepared before we're ready to accept the gift that is that answer to prayer. Um, I, d I don't know uh, why people take that and, and think that it means, okay, I'm going to go rub the bottle and wish for a, you know, Lamborghini. Um, that's not what God's talking about here. Okay. Uh, that's not what the Bible is talking about. The prosperity gospel is nonsense. It's selfish. It's world based, right? I want as much things as I can get here. Uh, in this world, no, um, no, that's not the point, uh, of any part of the Bible. Uh, so feel free to dig in and, and research some of that on your own. If you're a proponent of the prosperity gospel, I, I think you're on the right, tr the wrong track, but it is not for me to judge. You do you, but study it. Okay. Study the whole Bible, not just the one verse that you think says that you get and deserve and should have every little wish. Uh, God is not a genie. He wants a relationship with us. Um, he's not just there like, uh, you know, I dream of genie granting you every wish that you can come up with. Uh, number four, Describe a time that you felt solidarity with someone. I felt solidarity with many groups in my lifetime. Possibly the easiest example to explain and understand would be my time in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, the whole point of basic training for any military branch is to break the recruits down, remove their self-centered nature, which we all have at that age, uh, and replace it with a solidarity bonding them to each other during basic the drill sergeant or ti uh, in the uh, air force uh, serves as a common enemy to strive against together later that solidarity is focused against the actual enemy whoever that may be at that time um Romans 8, 15 to 17 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer for him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Some spiritual exercises that Albert Calhoun recommends to, to kind of dig this out, to kind of work this through in our minds and our hearts. Um, first, take the time to read through one of the Gospels. Imagine you are there among Jesus' disciples. How would you like to support Jesus as his story unfolds? Talk to Jesus about this. So, we all think we would do things differently than the people who lived in the Bible story. But would we? We see creation and think it could have happened accidentally, right? We have the entire Bible story. The people in the Bible had little, if any. They had stories passed verbally for the most part uh, until things started getting written down in the first century uh, and then more and more and then finally collected over a thousand years later. Um, we see God's work in our lives, but when the crisis is over, we pridefully congratulate ourselves as if we were victorious on our own. I've become very aware as I get older that as much as I want to be like Paul, I'm usually more like Jonah. When I should forgive and move on, I would rather see God take retribution for the sins that I see. I'm fine with vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, from Romans 12, 19. I have no interest in being a Christian vigilante. I just want to see justice done, and it hurts my heart when I see injustice destroy the lives of people across our country and the world. What I should be doing is praying for the repentance of the people causing all of this pain and heartbreak, including me in some cases, not looking for their punishment. It gets more difficult every day to tamp down our understandable anger at the world right society and culture are so broken that we cheer infanticide except the grooming of our children by government and educators and many of us are even willing to give up and forcibly take from others medical choice over viruses and gender confusion i pray for these people i pray for the people screaming about this Supreme Court leak, um, I pray that they come to sense over what they're screaming about. These are lives. There are no serious medical doctors or scientists anymore that don't believe that that birth, that life begins at conception. It's separate DNA. It's a separate heartbeat. How do you claim it's part of your own body out of one side of your mouth and out of the other side, force people to get vaccines that they don't want for viruses that are over 99% survivable? It just doesn't make any sense. Jesus said, you adulterous people, 
Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's James 4.4. Is this clear enough? As always, it is our choice. God gave you that choice. If your choice is to stand in front of the Supreme Court threatening the lives of justices over your right to murder a child that could have been avoided many other ways, then that is your choice. You will answer for that choice, but it is your choice. And as demonic as it looks to some of us in the world, if you ask for forgiveness, you will receive it. Atheists, anti-theists, and even many Christians say, my God wouldn't condemn over this. What they fail to understand is your God didn't. You did. It was your choice all along, and you are responsible for the results of that choice, not God. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That's 1 John 4, 4. This is so true. I often praise, I'm sorry, pray, I often pray to God to remove from me all that is still flesh and replace it with the spirit. I know this is a ridiculous prayer. I should surrender and persevere with the help of the Holy Spirit instead of just asking to be freed of it. Do we truly realize that God in us is far more powerful than the enemy in the world? Do we act like we know that? Why do you think that so many conform so easily to such horrific beliefs? There are people wearing t-shirts flaunting their multiple abortions. I just heard over the last couple of days about a, a movement called Shout Your Abortion. It's sickening. There are teachers posting TikTok videos about how to encourage gender transitions without parents finding out. Some of your neighbors were ready and willing to report you for mask and vax violations during the shutdown. The enemy preys on the weak of mind, heart, and soul and uses their numbers to convince the fence-sitters. The fact that we struggle with sin, fighting every day to resist even one more time than yesterday, shows that the spirit in us is so much powerful than the spirit of the enemy. John, 1 John 5.5 5 says, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. While we know the end of the story, we have to stop pretending that the victory will happen in this world. We should fight for true justice and light as we spread the gospel to any who are willing to hear it. But always remember that this world will end in glorious battle and fire, no matter who is president and who owns Twitter.
Number two, choose an event in Jesus's life that mirrors an experience in your own. Unjust accusations, betrayal by friends, being misunderstood by family or colleagues, becoming exasperated with others, facing temptation, and so on. As you read the story of that event, imagine Jesus sharing in your suffering. Pray deeply into the solidarity with him. Again, we're comparing our pain to his solidarity uh, or our pain to his in solidarity when I think we should be doing it the other way around. So let's instead read a Bible passage about how Jesus suffered and was betrayed and try to put ourselves in that position and think how we would have felt as he lived through that. Which side would we have been on when he talked about his body and blood being real and how his followers would eat his body and drink his blood and all and many of his followers went away and he asked his disciples are you going to leave me too and 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 i believe it was peter who said where are we going to go you're the messiah so where would you have come down in that fight right where would you have been in the garden of Gethsemane? Would you have been cutting off the servant's ear or running for your life? On Palm Sunday, Jesus was welcomed as the Messiah into Jerusalem, right? Victorious, riding the donkey into uh, into Jerusalem as they threw their their clothes and palm fronds on the ground uh, in front of his uh, in front of him as he entered the city. A week later, they were screaming for his crucifixion and cheering like wild animals as he died. There is no comparison. We need safe spaces when we're forced to hear the opinion of a a political rival. We cannot possibly comprehend what Jesus suffered. We can, however, make an effort to connect in empathy despite our understandable lack of comprehension. Number three. The world is broken and full of need. Do something that puts you in solidarity with someone's brokenness. For example, visit a nursing home, a prison, a shut-in, serve at a homeless shelter, provide resources through Angel Tree, Salvation Army, Army, or a community center. Um, Reach out to somebody in your church that serves or, or has a ministry of their own that you can help with. Do something to connect yourself with what Jesus did the entire, probably his entire life, but certainly the three years of his ministry that we see in the New Testament. I would encourage all of you to do this. It is affirming. It is life-changing when you start to serve others instead of yourself. It doesn't ever in any way make up for past wrongs, sins, mistakes, all of it. It doesn't, but it doesn't have to because Jesus already accepted your repentance for those if you've given it and has forgiven you if you've asked for it. So it's a little different when you're asking for forgiveness from Jesus because he'll give it. Uh, than asking for forgiveness from people. 
they don't always give it and sometimes they need time to get to the place where they can give it um i know the bible tells them to forgive their brother seven times 70 times um but it's not that easy for most people so uh give people time but repent and ask jesus for forgiveness and then live in that forgiveness in gratitude and show that gratitude by serving others uh, some resources on solidarity and jesus's suffering um, that albert calhoun listed uh, god has a dream a vision of hope for our time by desmond tutu uh, a grace disguised by jerry l sitzer and invitations from god by adele albert calhoun herself and of course uh, references albert calhoun's spiritual disciplines handbook which is where these um, disciplines come from each week or couple weeks uh, i mentioned spencer and carrie essen price's um, article five steps to encourage someone who's suffering and i mentioned earlier thomas ice's um, paper that he wrote for liberty university called the end time apostasy uh, i'm gonna end this uh study here but i do encourage us to every day bring our suffering to jesus lay it at his feet and know that we can walk away with that weight lifted from us but i also want to encourage everybody to take a few minutes whether it's this week or next week or once a week or you know 15 minutes a month whatever you feel is appropriate for yourself and spend that time in empathy for jesus in trying to understand the unimaginable pain and suffering that he lived through in in his life in his mis, uh, ministry and through his death for our sins i'll be praying for all of you i hope you'll be praying for me until next time rise up <laughs>